All right, you guys, if you have your Bible, let's open up to the sixth chapter of Judges. Get to this. We're considering tonight the God who saves part two. That's our sermon. Or actually, it's part three, I think. That's, this is our sermon title. We began looking at the text we have for tonight a few weeks back, but we've only dealt with so far verses 28 to 32. And there we considered how it is that even though sin deceives people greatly, God's arm to save is not slighted. In other words, God for the elect, for those he chooses, God overcomes the deceitfulness of sin in their lives through the work of the cross and even causes his plans to work though others are deceived in sin around them. That's a really good thing, friends. What it means is that for those of us who believe in Him and are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, God has overcome sin in such a way in our lives that it no longer blinds us to the truth and enslaves us, and also God's plans for us will not fail. We've been set free from sin and its eternal consequences in Christ. And even though we may have others surrounding us who are still in their sin, who don't believe, certainly we all do have that. We all have people in our lives that are still trapped in their sin, that are still lost, that are still deceived by sin. God is greater than that situation as well, and He'll still accomplish His will in our lives despite the efforts of those who are opposed to God in our lives. We might think of Romans 8, 28. You know, God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Or we might think of Joseph who had people in his life that wanted to harm him. Remember in the latter latter part of Genesis, they wanted to harm him and trap him in sin, but God still worked good in Joseph's life. God is merciful and gracious to those who love him, to those who he savingly loves. So previously, in Judges 6, we had Gideon, the man who God was going to use to be the judge, getting ready to deliver the nation of Israel. He had to put to death his sin, though, and destroy the idols his father Joash owned. And in doing that act, it caused the people who lived among him, who lived around him, it caused them to pursue him to kill him. But God overcame that problem of the townspeople's sin, and Gideon is not killed, and he's set up and ready to be the deliverer that Yahweh has chosen him to be. That was verse 31 to 32. Tonight, we'll also be considering the God who saves, but from a specific angle. We're going to consider the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how that affects the willingness of the people. And since we are thinking about the God who saves, it should be said up front that there is no salvation apart from the Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit who applies Jesus' atoning work to people. But in the church today, there is a lot of confusion on the operations of the Holy Spirit, specifically in the context of the Old Testament in comparison to the New Testament. So we're going to consider those things tonight. Let's read our text, and then we'll pray after that, asking God to bless our time in His Word. The reading of the Word of the Lord, beginning at verse 33 in Judges chapter 6. It says, Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. And the Abizarites were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they, were, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we 
We thank you for your word, and we pray for understanding this night as we consider a, a, a topic that is covered in mystery and in that much confusion in, in our modern time. And we pray that you would help us to not be confused about your word and that we would think rightly about the Holy Spirit so that we might worship you rightly, Lord. Help us, God, to be focused. Help us to be firm in your word and to, to know it and to have it be the, the, the joy of our lives and the focus tonight, Lord, as we gather. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we just now read in the account of Gideon's story that two groups of people are amassing. There's two groups of people that are coming together in, these, in this short passage. Gideon didn't get killed by Baal, obviously, where we left off last time. Baal can't contend for himself, in other words. And it should be clear to us as well that these groups are not getting together right now because they're wanting to have a good time. These groups are forming because there's about to be a battle. There's about to be a war. Israel's, in fact, is about to be delivered. So one of the groups is the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people from the east. Those are the same people that we learned about in the beginning of this chapter. These are the people who would come into where Israel was, was gathered there and where the people where Gideon was. And they would go into the land and they would ransack it. And all the people, the Israelites, would flee into the mountains and they would come in and just basically, you know, destroy everything that they had, take everything of value, and then leave. And they did that for seven years straight. So that's about to happen again. And so we read that they had crossed the Jordan. They were in the land that God had given to Israel in the Old Covenant. And the plan is to besiege Israel once again. But it's different this time because Gideon has intervened. He is... The God who saves, God is the God who saves, and he's going to be saving through Gideon because Gideon's been raised up to be the judge. So Gideon is being used to lead this other group. Verse 34, the Spirit clothed Gideon, and more on that in a moment. And then he sounded the trumpet. That was a common wartime practice, the sounding of a trumpet. We might already be familiar with it, actually. This was something that uh, cultures in the ancient Near East used to do, the A&E community. They would do that. You would sound this trumpet, and that would let the surrounding peoples know that it was like a call to battle. We see it happening before this event in some of the passages in Joshua. And then don't forget about Christ's return in the book of Revelation, as it's described there, where the trumpets are sounded and Christ returns, that his people are caught up to him. And then what comes after that? A battle and judgment, right? So the same thing, these trumpet calls. It's pointing to the judgment and this battle that's about to happen. So the Abezerites hear the trumpet, or the Abezerites hear the trumpet, and they come, and then messengers are sent throughout Israel, and we read of people responding to the call. The people are willing. Why are they willing? What's different now than the previous seven years? The reason is simple. It's in the text of the Holy Spirit clothed Gideon. And the Holy Spirit must also be behind the willingness of the people. If by nothing else... By virtue of clothing Gideon. Now, we'll talk about that in just a second. The deliverance that God provides through Gideon doesn't come until the seventh chapter. There's an interesting end to the sixth chapter, and we'll deal with that next time. But I want to use this short passage that we have for us tonight uh, to, for mainly one purpose, and hopefully in that to bring some clarity to the role and to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
to the operations of the Holy Spirit. There's no way we can cover everything, of course, but hopefully we can shed some light on two important issues. We see the Holy Spirit in action here, right? He clothes Gideon. What does that mean? This idiom isn't saying something different than what we've already actually read in Judges 3, chapter 10, when the Spirit came upon Othniel. The same thing happens with Jephthah later on in Judges. It happens with Samson. It happens with Saul later on in the Word. It's a bit more dramatic to say that the Spirit of Yahweh clothed Gideon, but it's the same message. The Spirit of God is coming upon him to accomplish something, a work a work in which God is glorified, in which God's glory is magnified. And this is a specific and important ministry of the Holy Spirit, but there's also much confusion about how the operation of the Spirit is working here, as I was saying. So we'll use the rest of our time to consider how the Spirit works in this regard, You know, thinking about things like this. Is this a unique thing the Holy Spirit does in the Old Testament only? Does the Holy Spirit do things like this in the New Testament that he doesn't, or does he do things in the New Testament that he doesn't do in the Old Testament? And some people would answer yes to those questions, whereas I would disagree. So the remainder of our time, I want to consider three things, really. First, we need to establish the general epics of Scripture, the epochs, the general periods that are revealed to us in Scripture. And then I want to think of the ministry of the Holy Spirit within the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. Um, so in between those two epics, especially, those are the main periods of history that we might divide history up into, which is also still continuing, as I'll, I'll show. And when we think of those two periods of time, we'll think of the Holy Spirit's operations in salvation, and then also and in empowering. So three headings of consideration. So here's my point. Here's my thesis right up front. This is what I want to prove and clear up for us. It's this, that the Holy Spirit does both of these things, salvation and empowering, the same way in any period of time. From the very, since time was first began, when God created time, till time will run out. Salvation and empowering is done the same way. And it happens in no different from the Holy Spirit's um, perspective. So first... What are the general epics in Scripture? What are the general periods of time that may be divided into Scripture? And for the sake of time, this will have to be brief. So I hope that you guys are somewhat familiar with covenants. We've talked about covenants here before. Um, the Baptist Children's Catechism gives a simple definition. It says that a covenant is an agreement between two or more parties. There are more detailed ways to think of what a covenant is, but that's sufficient. A covenant is an agreement between two or more parties. And the Bible records many covenants, covenants between people, but especially covenants between people or mankind and God. We might even think of a pre-creation covenant between the Father and the Son and the Spirit for salvation. But if we consider the biblical covenants between God and mankind, we can sufficiently break down the Bible into periods of time or into different epochs. And in doing so helps us to be able to understand what is happening in those times. So, in that case, there are covenants made first with Adam and then with Noah. Those are the first two made with mankind by God. Neither one of them promises salvation. Although we might say that the covenant with Adam promised a reward of eternal life, 
but that's not salvation because they didn't need to be saved from anything at that time. So what those two covenants primarily do is they explain how God will deal with mankind with, within creation as a whole. These creation-wide covenants extend to all of mankind, even through today. In other words, the covenants that God made with Adam and Noah still affect people today. We still see rainbows today, don't we? Did you see, see one today? I, I did earlier. Steve didn't. Sorry. That's, that's, my apologies, brother. <laughs> but we see that the rainbow was a sign that God wasn't going to flood the earth again, promised in the Noahic covenant. People still suffer from Adam's sin, right? The, the Adamic or the garden covenant. And so being that these covenants are creation-wide covenants, the terms of them continue on for the most part. And there's no tree in the Garden of Eden anymore, right? So it's not an exact parallel, but the fact that people are still dead in Adam, the fact that God has promised not to flood the earth and that people have dominion over the land, those things are still true today. Then we have covenants made with Abraham, Moses, and David in that order. And these specific covenants were for the nation of Israel only. God revealed his law, and he promised to bring a savior through it, through him, uh, through them, it, or excuse me, a savior through the people of Israel, through these covenanted people. It did not promise salvation, but in many ways it typified salvation. It pointed to and it alluded to salvation, in other words. And so properly speaking, these three covenants all together form what we call the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, you read about the Old Covenant, bless you, it's speaking of the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel through the heads of those covenants, Abraham, Moses, and David. And this old covenant spans the vast majority of Scripture. Uh, basically, everything written between Genesis chapter 12 all the way through the gospel accounts and the ushering in the new covenant is primarily focused on God dealing with a specific people through the old covenant. That's a lot of biblical data, isn't it? I mean, that's the majority of our Bibles, where God is explaining what life is like and, and how he was blessing and involved with this nation of Israel through the Old Covenant, which is leading to and promising and showing forth the New Covenant. But we have to remember that the Old Covenant was only made with the nation of Israel. It was not made with the whole world. Not everybody had God's law, right? Not every country, not every nation had the prophet sent to them. It was only Israel. It was only those people within the Old Covenant. And then we have in the Old Testament another covenant promised that didn't get revealed until the New Testament. And by the way, testament and covenant, those are actually interchangeable terms. They actually mean the same exact thing. So when, you, when you, your Bibles are broken down into Old Testament and New Testament, it's really essentially saying it's broken down to Old Covenant and New Covenant as well. But anyways, this new covenant, or this, this other covenant that was promised, was first promised back in Genesis 3, in which God makes a promise to Adam and Eve about victory over the serpent, who is the devil. This covenant is also revealed in types and shadows over thousands of years, and then it's prophetically announced by Jeremiah in the 31st chapter of his book, there we learn that it's called the New Covenant. And so it stands in contrast or in comparison to the Old Covenant then, right? And this New Covenant is made in Christ's blood. And God is in this covenant with people all around the world based upon their faith in Him. In other words, it's not just with the nation of Israel. 
And the old covenant at this point now has come to an end. It is no longer in operation, according to many evidences in the word, especially in the letter to the Hebrews. The old covenant has passed away. There is just a new covenant now. Jesus talked about it in many different ways, too. He said, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. He's talking about the, the passing away of the old covenant and the coming in of the new covenant. So then we are presently now living in this new covenant time period, this new covenant epoch, epoch. There's not another covenant God is going to make with mankind. Some of the truths and agreements that were set forth in the covenant with Adam and Noah still exist today. Like, you know, everybody is born dead in their sins because they're in Adam, for example. But the old covenant has come to an end, and we now live in the time of the new covenant. And this time officially began when Jesus went to the cross and died. We're not living in the old covenant. No one is. The nation of Israel is not in the Old Covenant anymore. Remember, the nation of Israel didn't exist for 2,000 years almost, right? They, the temple was destroyed around 70 AD, and then the nation of Israel became a land again in, what, 1960-something? 48. 48? Okay. So, I mean, they just didn't exist as a, as a political power until recently, and the Old Covenant has, is, is gone. So we're in the time of the New Covenant. And here's where the confusion about the Holy Spirit comes into play. Does the Holy Spirit save differently in the Old Covenant in comparison to the New Covenant? Does the Holy Spirit simply come on to people to perform tasks, like in the example here with Gideon in the Old Covenant? Or does, does he do that in the New Covenant? Does the Holy Spirit indwell believers in the Old Covenant like we know he does in the New Covenant in us, right? We all, that's a standard Christian Orthodox teaching that the Holy Spirit lives inside believers. It's, it's, it's not fought against. You know, it's an accepted doctrine. But it's not about saints in the Old Testament. And maybe there's one more question that you might all have in light of these questions I am pondering for us. Maybe you're thinking, well, who cares about these things? You know, maybe you're thinking, why don't you just give us something practical, Paul? Well, I got to tell you, rightly understanding the Word of God is practical. It's more important than learning like five steps to to a better you or something vain like that. Understanding God's Word informs our worship of Him, and nothing can be more important for us. Nothing can be more practical for us. So even though this is a doctrinal issue that we're kind of looking at the text and then taking a step back from the text to consider what is being actually said here, this is practical for us. So let's think of the first question. Does God save in the Old Testament in the same way as in the New Testament? And I mean, it's a fair question to have, honestly. I mean, in the Old Testament, Jesus hadn't yet gone to the cross to die for sins, right? You, you could see why there would be confusion there. But that's not as if Jesus isn't mentioned in the Old Testament, right? Uh, we see him in Christophanies. We've talked about that before, you know, these pre-incarnate interactions with God and his people. Uh, like when Jacob uh, wrestles with God. Plus, he's revealed to us in types and shadows all throughout the Old Testament. We've been noting those even as we've seen them in Judges even. even remember, all the Judges are in a way a type of Christ. How Jesus is the deliverer, and these Judges deliver Israel. Israel being the people of God. Israel being a type of the church, the true people of God. Israel having in it 
the church as well, some true, some of the true people of God in the new covenant. That's a little bit more complex. We'll talk about that a little bit more soon. And so even though Jesus hasn't come to die on the cross in the Old Testament, he's still very much present and the main figure of the Old Testament. Okay, Jesus is very much present and the main figure of the Old Testament. No matter now, now, the matter is complicated in the minds of many because of the Old Covenant. That's why I wanted to at least briefly remind us of the covenants. So what we need to know and remember is that the Old Covenant never promised salvation. The Old Covenant that God made with first with Abraham and then Moses and David and essentially the whole nation then of Israel because they're all, they all come from Abraham. That covenant never promised eternal salvation. Keeping the law never saved anyone. It doesn't save anyone today. It didn't save anyone in the old covenant, and it won't save anyone in the future. We all died in Adam, and so the law, we can't undo that by then being obedient. But we can't be obedient even because we were already dead in Adam. And so our natural disposition is to sin and is to break the law. The law shows us our sin, but... The Old Covenant did promise temporal blessing in the land for obedience. And that's why it gets confusing. Because some people convolute those terms with that temporal blessing for eternal salvation. And so, at the same time, cursing was pronounced for disobedience. So Moses reminds them of this near the end of his life. This is Deuteronomy 30. This is right before Joshua is going to be named the one who is going to lead Israel into the promised land. This is verse 15 to 18. And it says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear it, but you are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. So you see how perhaps people could be confused by thinking, oh, well, keep the law good, saved, don't keep the law, not saved. But it's not talking about eternal salvation. He's simply talking about temporal blessing in the land. Why does the nation of Israel have the problems it has in the book of Judges? Because they're, they're worshiping other gods. They're not doing what, he, what Moses just told them to do here. They're doing what he told them to not do. And because of that, the curse has come. And in, in the Judges chapter 6, the curse comes in the form of the Midianites and the, um, the other peoples from the east. So the Old Covenant doesn't promise salvation. It's a temporal blessing or cursing. And, the, and that is the point of the Old Covenant. It's true that... These, this relationship does typify salvation in the New Covenant, but the Old Covenant itself didn't promise eternal salvation as a reward. You see, people before the Old Covenant was given, people who lived within the Old Covenant, and people who lived after the Old Covenant came to an end and the New Covenant began, they have all been saved the same exact way. There's not different ways in those different epochs. Epochs. I keep saying it's epochs. The Apostle Peter and John explain this clearly in Acts to people who, epoch, yeah, I'm horrible with words, Tupac. So 
the Apostle Peter and John explain this clearly to people in Acts 4. Acts 4, 11 through 12. He's, uh, they've been in prison. They've been told not to preach the good news about Jesus Christ. And they tell them this about Jesus. This is verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name under heaven. There wasn't some other name that existed before Jesus came to the earth. There won't be some future name to be revealed. Salvation is only in Jesus because he lived a sinless life and died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin so that whoever believes in him and repents of their sin will not perish but have eternal life. But the reality of this, the full meaning of this, was veiled to a lot of people in the Old Covenant. Ephesians 3 speaks about this. The letter to the Hebrews is greatly concerned with this, that those who lived in the Old Covenant, even those people who were saved in the Old Covenant time, they didn't fully understand everything as clearly as we do presently today. The details were veiled, but they had faith in what was revealed to them. Hebrews 11, for example, outlines the faith of people in the Old Testament. Many of them judges that word that we've been reading about or that we will be reading about eventually. Romans 4 tells us that Abraham had faith just like we do, or actually better, what it actually says is that we have faith like Abraham did. So what then is the Holy Spirit's role? Well, certainly the Holy Spirit caused the person to be born again, to be regenerated, even in the old covenant. It's the, it's the only thing that can account for the reality that some in Israel were saved, whereas others were not. Because remember, when we look at the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel was often in judgment because the vast majority of them did not obey the Lord. But some in that group were saved. Some of them were, remember, Elijah talks about a remnant, a few thousand that were, that were sealed off, that were not bowing the knee to Baal. And then remember the account of Ezekiel and the dry bones in which he's Ezekiel standing. He has this vision of a valley of dry bones, dead bones with all the sinew and all the meat off of them. They're, 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 they're as dead as they can be. In other words, these, these people, long time dead. And the breath goes out over them. The breath, the spirit, the pneuma of God goes out over them and they come alive. It's picturing the new birth by the, by the spirit. And so this truth of the Spirit regenerating someone is there in the Old Testament, but it's just veiled. It's not as clear. And this is important, friends, because we have to have a proper hermeneutic so that we don't make mistakes interpreting the Bible. Are you guys aware of what a hermeneutic is? Is that a word you've heard before? No. You should, it's, a wor- it's a word you should know. It's a, word that you sh- it's a weird word. I mean, hermeneutic, it sound, there's a funny... Um, I'm glad that's not recorded. So it, it sounds, there's a, there's a guy who does a show called Retro Radio. He has a series called Herman Who? Because it's like, it's like hermeneutic. It, kind of, it sounds like Herman. But anyways, the point of it, the, what a hermeneutic is, is a, it's the art of interpretation. It's in other words, how do you read the Bible? A way of thinking of it that's maybe helpful is like, we all have these glasses that we wear when we read the Bible that inform our interpretation of it. Everyone has it. You might not know exactly what it is, or maybe you do, but 
not something for you to learn. I'd be happy to talk to you about that more in detail at some other point. But we all have a hermeneutic. And so what you need to know is that when it comes to interpreting the Bible, as Christians today, we give what's called priority to the New Testament. What that means is that the New Testament helps us to understand the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, things were veiled. Things were hidden. Things were revealed in shadows. In the New Testament, they're revealed. So we, so we take what we see and what we know in the New Testament, and we look then at the Old Testament and can understand it properly and rightly. I don't have time to show it in detail, but that's exactly what the apostles did. But what it means is that when something isn't exactly clear in the Old Testament, but it is clear in the New Testament, then we can know what happened in the Old Testament. Because again, this is one book. And since the Old Testament doesn't explain a different thing, we can be certain that the Holy Spirit gave new life to saints in the Old Testament, just like he does in the New Testament. Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, right? So in other words, not by the Old Covenant law, if you think of it in that term, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. There's being born again. Uh, it says, verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that's the same for those who were saved in the Old Covenant, just like it is for us now in the New Covenant. One of the details that was veiled for saints in the Old Covenant is that the Holy Spirit indwelt all of those who truly believed, just as it is for us now in the New Covenant. Like I was saying earlier, it's an undisputed fact among Christians that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. But there is, it is disputed if the Holy Spirit lived inside saints in the Old Covenant time. And, I, and what I'm wanting to say is that he did, it was just veiled. It wasn't as clear because God wasn't revealing it yet. That was part of the mystery that was in Christ that was going to be revealed when Christ came. And our, our hermeneutic helps us to know that is the true. So a lot of people get confused. And I think this is the case because Jesus says a couple of times that in, in the Gospels, in John's Gospel especially, that it would be good for him to go to heaven because when he does so, He's going to send the helper, the paraclete, the comforter, you know, the, the Holy Spirit, in other words. And, and we read of Acts in chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit then comes down on the people and people speak in tongues. Remember that? And so people see that as a fulfillment of what Jesus was saying there in John. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But concerning salvation, the Holy Spirit indwelt believers then just like he does now. A couple of verses, okay? Romans 8 9 through 11. Flip too far. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now remember, we've already said that saints in the Old Testament were saved by Christ. But 
Think about what Paul is saying here. If they don't have the Spirit of Christ, then the Apostle Paul is telling us that they don't belong to him. So then I ask, did Jesus save people who belonged to someone else? So they would belong to someone else. That doesn't make any sense. The answer is a no. Secondly, if they don't have the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, will they be raised from the dead? No, right? That's what he said right here. So then they must also have had the spirit, or if they don't, that means all the saints in the Old Testament didn't raise from the dead, which then, we have, that means when Jesus said that Abraham was alive and Moses was alive, what, was he lying? No, he's not. He told the truth because they had the spirit. Now, some people make it seem like people in the Old Covenant had to live in constant fear that they would lose their salvation because the Holy Spirit didn't indwell them like he did now, like he just went on them for a certain time and then he could leave. And that's just, that's just bad teaching. Uh, listen, friends, we can be confident that God will persevere us, that he will prevent us from falling away because he has given us his Spirit to seal us. That will, he, he, will, he will prevent us from abandoning him because if we didn't have that Holy Spirit living within us, we would abandon him at the drop of a hat. We would do, we would do our own will rather than wanting to be guided by him. The Spirit is the seal of our inheritance. That's what Ephesians 1 says. And then Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul makes an argument that I think should put to bed the notion of people not being dwelt in the Old Covenant. Actually, it should do more than that. It should probably bury it six feet under. Ephesians 2, 11 through 12. Listen to what uh, the apostle says here. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, so that's people who weren't even in the Old Covenant, right? The Gentiles weren't in the Old Covenant. Only the nation of Israel were, was the Jews. So he says that, um, and by the way, this is the letter to the Ephesians. So this is written in a new covenant time. So, so indwelling is accepted as orthodox by all Christians. So he says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope in God, having, excuse me, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul points out that people who are unsaved are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. But notice what is said before those statements. It says that they're separated from Christ, meaning that to be united to Christ is to not be alienated and to not be a stranger. The very things that Old Testament Israel saved people were. So were the Old Testament saints separated from Christ, those who were truly saved? No, they couldn't be, because if they were, then they also would be strangers to the commonwealth of Israel and aliens. Were they strangers to the covenants of promise? The covenants of promise were these covenants that promised the new covenant. All the, all the, co the old covenants and the, the shadows and the types that were in them, promised this new covenant in Jesus? Well, of course not. That's what he's saying. Then notice a few verses down in Ephesians 2, 18 to 22. And this seals it, I think. He says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see what he does there? The Gentiles who didn't have the access that Israel had to the covenants of promise, they were strangers. They now do have access in what? Or we should actually say in whom? In, in one spirit to the Father. Both of them have access in one spirit to the Father. These at one time unsaved Gentiles, now saved, have access the same way the Israelites did. What is the access? The Spirit. It's the, the Spirit. By the Spirit then and now. Do you, you see that? Even further, they are all members now built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The Old Covenant had the prophets, right? The New Covenant had the apostles who had a prophetic ministry. But they're all building the same foundation, right? It's not like the, the Old Covenant prophets built a different foundation and the New Covenant apostles built a different one. They're building one foundation that each has Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. In other words, the prophets and the apostles were building the same thing, right? And then all of them are now joined into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. By the Spirit. Were the saints in the Old Testament unjoined? Of course not. The prophets were building the same as the apostles. So concerning salvation, the Holy Spirit operated the same way in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He regenerates and then he indwells. None of this difference in different times confusion. It's the same. But what about empowering? This is the last thing we're considering. Some would say that the Holy Spirit didn't indwell people in the Old Covenant, but he simply empowered them to do specific acts. Like our example with Gideon. Now, we've already seen that proper hermeneutics makes that argument void. People were born again and dwelt in the Old Testament because of the promise of the New Covenant. But it's also true that the Holy Spirit did, in fact, come upon people to empower them to do great things. We see it many times. Spirit comes upon many of the judges to do the works that they do. He comes upon some of the kings for a work, notably Saul, because we read that the Spirit leaves Saul after that work was over. The Spirit came upon the builders of the tabernacle and to gift them with the ability to do work. Presumably, he left them after that work was done, but I can't say for sure either way. He came upon people for a rebuilding of the temple in Nehemiah. And it is without a, it is without a doubt true that one of the ways that the Holy Spirit operates is by coming upon people for a certain task in the Old Testament. And those are just the ones we know about. Right? It could be very well true that he did many other things as well. But I also like to make the case that he does this exact same thing in the New Covenant as well, or at least he did. Think about when Jesus sent out the disciples two by two, and they performed miracles and casted out demons. By what power were they able to do that? The Spirit, right? Had to have been. Did they always have that ability to do that? No. Jesus gave them the authority to do it for that time period to do it. Or how about when the Spirit fell upon the saints in Acts 2 and they spoke in tongues? It was the Spirit. Or how about all the miracles and the others who spoke in tongues in the early church? The Spirit. Or now, those sign gifts don't happen today. Hebrews 1.1 tells us that long ago God spoke to us by the apostles and prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. God still 
causes miracles to happen as well, but individual people aren't given the ability to have authority over, de- over demons or raising people from the dead or healing diseases. Those are all things that the Holy Spirit did through individuals during the early building of the church. So it is actually no different than how the Spirit came upon people to give them gifts to build the physical temple and the tabernacle. It doesn't happen today, not as gifts within individuals who can use them at their will, because the church has already been established. Foundation has been laid. The people aren't speaking in tongues anymore. There's not, any, there's not new scripture being written anymore. We're adding to the church now, but the truth has been set forth. The foundation was built upon and laid. The Holy Spirit operates the same way in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But what about those passages I mentioned earlier in which Jesus promised the Holy Spirit? We don't have time to go read them now. It's John 7 and 14. You could read them later. But in those passages, Jesus is revealing to his people who the creator of the covenant community was, the new covenant community. It's the Holy Spirit. He's going to come and live in the people forever. That has always been the case for the elect, and even in the Old Covenant. But since this group of people, a safe people, was no longer going to be hidden as it were, or as they were in the Old Covenant, since it was going to be made known in the New Covenant, the veil was going to be lifted, Jesus tells of the Spirit, and the Spirit himself will be the creator of the community. And then even on top of that, as we've already just mentioned, he empowers people for the task of creating that community just like he did with the tabernacle, just like he did with the, the, the actual temple for Solomon and the one Nehemiah built. So friends, we have a lot to be thankful for in the ministry and the operations of the Holy Spirit. He was active in the Old Testament to save people then. He empowered people to do works that typified the graces of the new covenant. And in the new covenant, he is active to save people as well. The new covenant is the covenant of grace revealed, this covenant of promise that was veiled for thousands of years. And in the new covenant, the Spirit equipped people, people to do works that revealed what was hidden in the old covenant. We can't afford to be wrong about the Spirit, church. This is the God who saves. It's not just the Holy Spirit by himself. He applies salvation to us. He works in cooperation with the Father and the Son. But we can't be wrong about the Spirit and worship rightly. So may God grant us understanding and may we preserve the holy unity of the Spirit's operation through both of the Testaments. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the time to consider the work of the Spirit. Uh, You don't get a lot of attention often, Holy Spirit, and you deserve it. You are glorious. You are all-powerful. Every divine attribute that we would apply to the Father and the Son we know also belongs to you. And so we pray that you would help us to think rightly about you and that you would magnify your glory in our lives. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.